Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is May 8th, 2022, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's a privilege to be joined in dialogue by members of the Toronto Philosophy and Calgary Philosophy Meetup groups. Whether you've been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. To speak, I'd ask participants to use the raise hands feature in Zoom, and I'll call on you in order using your first name. As always, I've suggested three themes to focus our discussion, which are posted on the shared drive link to the event notice on meetup.com. As we exchange thoughts in today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread of ideas. We can go in any direction the group chooses, but for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. So in the second part of Plato's statesman that we are discussing today, from 279d to 294a, the visitor from Elia equates the art of weaving or intertwining with the ruling of a social fabric. By analogy to the process of fabric making, he asserts that the good statesman is one who takes the measure not only of the extremes of opinion and circumstances, but most importantly of their mean. Can we apply this principle to leadership now, among today's diverse societies, 2,400 years after it was written, particularly as political views have become more extreme and polarized? The art of good statesmanship naturally involves compromise between many competing interests and priorities, and therefore requires an understanding of proportion and not simply seeking the midpoint of extremes. The visitor leads us to understand that knowledge of proportionality, or ratio, is the basis of good rule by explaining that there are two types of expertise in everything that we do. The challenge is that these types of expertise are unequal and therefore do not produce a well-defined midpoint in their combinations. This inequality, the visitor points out, is inevitable when expertise, both among statesmen and their followers, is variable and of differing types, and thus the need for ratio. The first type of expertise, the visitor says, is one among a number of root causes contributing to an eventual outcome. The other type is the one and only cause of the outcome itself. To understand the distinction by way of analogy, if I create a pyramid-shaped house of cards and then remove one card from its foundation, the house will collapse. In that case, the only outcome is the collapse, and I am its only cause. By contrast, if I remove a boulder from a mountain, the mountain will not collapse, although I and others like me are contributing, in some small way, to the eventual decay of the mountain over time. The one and only cause of the outcome itself is unconditional and does not depend on other events over the course of time whereas a contributory cause is very much time-dependent. It's an important distinction that the visitor draws as he goes on to explain that in every sphere of human endeavor, these two types of expertise apply either in combination or separation in the fabric of society. At 284a to b, the visitor asks how the leader who believes only in the absolutes of extremes will ever have knowledge of their present potential in combination. When all things come to be in opposites, as we learned from the Phaedo, How will the statesman ever imagine the mediating potential of many pairs of extremes? And where else would the combinations of extremes in their own derivative exist if they were not becoming with variability in the present? It may make us wonder whether in the context of time and the two types of expertise, the present state of becoming is the mean of extremes past and future. So some things in the social fabric divide equally and some don't. The equal pertains to the even and the unequal to the odd. The even and the odd do not share in the same midpoint, and therefore the visitor asserts that the mean, or due measure in another translation, defines the common ground of the unequal in combination and separation. 
Taking the measure of the mean, the statesman does not refer only to the two extremes of outcome, but to the sum of all potential between them, which is then divided by the number of contributing causes to derive an average. Since it is a product of division, the mean is a fraction and a ratio, and therefore statesmanship requires an understanding of proportion. We've encountered discussion about proportionality before in Plato's works, perhaps most prominently in the divided line analogy of the Republic that featured in our first episode of this season, with respect to the distinction between truth and untruth in unequal measures of intelligible and visible perception. For an excellent summary of the divided line and the proportionality of the four levels of cognition that are inherent in it, I highly recommend the ancient Greece declassified podcast episode entitled, Why People Hate Plato. The subject of proportionality in the mean bring the visitor and young Socrates to examine the constitutional challenges that arise from unequal divisions in societies. No form of government, monarchy, tyranny, aristocracy, oligarchy, or democracy is immune from such challenges. In two weeks, when we read the remainder of Plato's Statesman, we'll see the assertion that over time, the reconciliation of inequalities among citizens, as well as their rulers, is the basis of a flexible social fabric that is capable of adaptation and harmony. Such fabrics exist when led by rulers who appreciate the power of proportion in cutting not to the extremes, but to the mean. So I thought we could begin by witnessing the politics of polarization in the extremes with a speech by a current Michigan state senator. It's a very different type of speech from Robert Kennedy's Ripple of Hope that we listened to in our last episode, but I found it to be a powerful expression by a legislator of the need to move away from the extremes and to find a mean of unity to overcome division. In this case, State Senator Mallory McMorrow addresses a fellow legislator from the opposing party who has accused her of grooming children for pedophilia, which is indeed an extreme accusation, simply because she did not agree with the proposition of banning speech in schools about LGBTQ issues. McMorrow's speech, like Kennedy's, places the matter in the context of time as she says, each and every single one of us bears the responsibility for writing the next chapter of history, and we can't pretend the past did not happen. After she recalls the civil leadership of Martin Luther King and his supporters in the 1960s. The question for now, a half century later, is how do we encourage statesmanship so that such anger and discord is no longer engendered and to ensure, as Senator McMorrow vows, that we will not let hate win? Thank you, Mr. President. I didn't expect to wake up yesterday to the news that the senator from the 22nd district had overnight accused him of grooming and sexualizing children in an email fundraising for herself. So I sat on it for a while wondering why me? And then I realized because I am the biggest threat to your hollow, hateful scheme. Because you can't claim that you are targeting marginalized kids in the name of, quote, parental rights if another parent is standing up to say no. So then what? Then you dehumanize and marginalize me. You say that I'm one of them. You say she's a groomer. She supports pedophilia. She wants children to believe that they were responsible for slavery and to feel bad about themselves because they're white. Well, here's a little bit of background about who I really am. Growing up, my family was very active in our church. I sang in the choir. My mom taught CCD. One day, our priest called a meeting with my mom and told her that she was not living up to the church's expectations and that she was disappointing. My mom asked why. Among other reasons, she was told it was because she was divorced and because the priest didn't see her at mass every Sunday. So where was my mom on Sundays? She was at the soup kitchen with me. 
My mom taught me at a very young age that Christianity and faith was about being part of a community, about recognizing our privilege and blessings and doing what we can to be of service to others, especially people who are marginalized, targeted, and who had less often unfairly. I learned that service was far more important than performative nonsense like being seen in the same pew every Sunday or writing Christian in your Twitter bio and using that as a shield to target and marginalize already marginalized people. I also stand on the shoulders of people like Father Ted Hesburgh, the longtime president of the University of Notre Dame, who was active in the civil rights movement, who recognized his power and privilege as a white man, a faith leader, and the head of an influential and well-respected institution and who saw black people in this country being targeted and discriminated against and beaten and reached out to lock arms with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he was alive, when it was unpopular and risky and marching alongside them to say, we've got you to offer protection and service and allyship to try to right the wrongs and fix injustice in the world. So who am I? I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom who knows that the very notion that learning about slavery or redlining or systemic racism somehow means that children are being taught to feel bad or hate themselves because they are white is absolute nonsense. No child alive today is responsible for slavery. No one in this room is responsible for slavery. But each and every single one of us bears responsibility for writing the next chapter of history. Each and every single one of us decides what happens next and how we respond to history and the world around us. We are not responsible for the past. We also cannot change the past. We can't pretend that it didn't happen or deny people their very right to exist. I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom. I want my daughter to know that she is loved, supported, and seen for whoever she becomes. I want her to be curious, empathetic, and kind. People who are different are not the reason that our roads are in bad shape after decades of disinvestment, or that healthcare costs are too high, or that teachers are leaving the profession. I want every child in this state to feel seen, heard, and supported, not marginalized and targeted because they are not straight, white, and Christian. We cannot let hateful people tell you otherwise to scapegoat and deflect from the fact that they are not doing anything to fix the real issues that impact people's lives. And I know that hate will only win if people like me stand by and let it happen. So I want to be very clear right now. Call me whatever you want. I hope you brought in a few dollars. I hope it made you sleep good last night. I know who I am. I know what faith and service means and what it calls for in this moment. We will not let hate win. Well, I'm just wondering what people think about that speech and what lessons, if any, it holds for us. Um, one thing that struck me in, in particular is that the discord that develops when there is disagreement over language, uh, which is the essential tool of the soul. So in this example, one side has equated the existence of gay people with pedophilia and the other with freedom of expression. Uh, so it has a particular relevance, I think, to the meaning of names. Uh, the part at the end of our reading for the previous episode that we ran out of time to discuss but is reinforced in today's selection at 286A when the visitor says, the things that are without body 
which are the finest and greatest, are shown clearly only by verbal means and by nothing else. But practice in everything is easier in smaller things rather than in, re in relation to the greater. Uh, so it's a point that the visitor race relates specifically to democracy uh, at the end of today's reading, implying that we, uh, that we gave then, as now, one name only to democracy, but it exists, in fact, in more than one variety. And so I'm just wondering uh, you know, what, what you saw in this speech, but also what you, you think about that idea of naming and, and you know, what we call the practice of, of statesmanship uh, now and how it's evolved over time. Uh, any thoughts in general about that? Well, one thing that maybe we can start by looking at is the, the idea of contributing causes that uh, is discussed at 281D to, uh, to E. Uh, let me just share the screen again. And here we have, as I said in the introduction, the, the idea that there is two sorts of expertise in relation to all the things that people do. One is a contributory cause of production, and the other is itself a cause. And so in this sense, we're each causing something specifically. There, there are things that I cause in particular, and nobody else contributes to those cause, cause or to that cause, but uh, there are things that uh, I contribute to and others contribute to their outcomes that that are dependent on multiple contributions. And so I think in, in the art of statesmanship, uh, certainly, you know, the, the statesman has to recognize that uh, things are not caused by single actors or single events. Uh, many things are caused by a whole combination and a whole series of events uh, and a combination of, of people contributing to it. And so I think it's an important point to understand in, in the argument that, uh, that there is a mean that we need to seek, uh, and it's not just simply going to the extremes, as we heard in Mallory McMorrow's speech. Uh, you know, there is this tendency, I think, now towards the extreme. Um, and, you know, is, is that where we want to really go with, with things? So, uh, again, just wondering what, uh, what people think about this. Darren, your thoughts? Yeah, I just want to come back to the naming issue. Plato brings up so many issues doing having or says so many interesting things to do with names. I like that at the beginning, he he talked about where then shall we find a statesman path, statesman's path? For we must find it, separate it from the rest, and imprint upon it the seal of a single class. Then we must set the mark of another single class upon all the other paths that lead away from this and make our soul conceive of all the signs as of two classes. So this is, a, this was a, like a, the, near the very beginning of where he was talking about his uh, method of division. Like as, and then as we actually go through this process of division, how we, he points out how we make, we take shortcuts and make mistakes along the way. When we think that we already have certain names for things, we have this, we already have this distinction in our language between like Greeks and barbarians, for instance, I think this is how we started last time and how, you know, that that's a distinction sort of based on, you know, our prejudices, but it might not be a good distinction and how there's another one between like one between animals and humans and how like we critique that one because maybe there's some other animal who's rational, like the crane. So I, I find this, I found this interesting because like, as he said at the start that in this process of um, trying to find the truth about something and we're making these divisions, we sort of, as he says it, we imprint upon a seal of a single class and 
I understood that as like putting a name to it, right? And then, you know, all the other things, we have another class, which just has another name. Um, of course, uh, as we saw in the Sophist and elsewhere, sometimes like Plato has to make up words <laughs> for certain <laughs> distinctions because we don't have we don't have words for some of them. And sometimes the words that we do have are inadequate because they mix up different things. So we saw this in the Sophist the last week and the, the third week we did on the Sophist. Um, let's come back to the speech. The the person she was um, arguing against, who was um, accusing her of like grooming children, all that ridiculous stuff, like that's that's playing on on people's prejudices about words that already exist in our language, through our history, through our culture, and uh, through associations people make, and that's thinking along the shortcut that I feel like is one of the sort of warnings about doing philosophy that Plato wants to give us in this dialogue. Because I mean, this week we saw, <laughs> we saw several times where Plato was like, "Oh, why are we taking so long? <laughs> you know, why?" And people were getting annoyed by how long this is taking. And Plato was like, "Oh no, but we have to. You know, we we sort of sometimes we have to go through this process so we can be absolutely clear on things." And I think it's it's this process of um, so that we don't let names and the ex- there are existing words and our stereotypes and our prejudices basically lead us away from the truth. Um, and so we have to be careful with words. Like, you know, like in, in Plato's case, words like barbarians and, and animals and, and so on. Anyway, I just think, yeah, I think, I think there definitely is really interesting connections. So it's a good question to bring up, James. Well, thanks. And, and yeah, I mean, that quote was from 286A again, that uh, where, okay. uh, where the visitor says, the things that are without body, which are the finest and greatest are shown clearly only by verbal means and by nothing else. And uh, you know, my thinking there is that, you know, this, the verbal expression is the only means that the soul has to make an effect on the, the fabric of space and time, the, the, the physical universe, uh, the soul itself being immaterial, uh, so that it's the words that have this effect. And clearly, I think in that speech, we saw a very important effect of words. And as you said, Darren, I think that, that we develop prejudices about words over time, and others induce us to develop prejudices about words. But I think here that, you know, the visitor is making an important point about naming uh, later on in the, the section that we're reading today uh, about democracy, whereas he says, you know, rule by the few, uh, you know, which is, you know, monarchy or plutocracy, aristocracy, uh, you know, there, there's different varieties of rule by the few. And we've developed names that apply to those particular types of varieties or flavors of ruling. But democracy itself, he makes the the point, is that we still use only one word for democracy when, in fact, it really has evolved into several different forms of government. And maybe in this speech, we saw multiple forms or multiple perceptions of, of what democracy is. In one case, one of the legislators thinks that democracy means that certain speech should be banned in schools. And the other legislator thinks that uh, free speech uh, for marginalized groups is is appropriate. And so, you know, maybe there's different different perceptions of that single name, democracy. Uh, and and certainly, it's an important point that we'll uh, we'll focus on in the next next episode, in particular, when we talk about the end of the statesman as as the visitor dives into the nature of of different forms of government. So. Uh, I think it's it's setting us up well for for the conclusion of the statesman. So, so and and as you said, I think you pointed out this this idea of the shortcoming and or the shortcut in thinking, where we want to maybe just uh, use a blanket term 
to uh, cover all sorts of different things when in fact we should take the time uh, you know and to to uh, to to separate the different ideas and that that was i think you know what you raised was the the kind of little ironic discussion that the visitor had about well why are we taking so long to discuss this and uh, so he's he's calling into he's calling into question you know why he's used all of these complicated terms you know when he could have just rushed to the conclusion uh, but I think the point is very much that uh, you can't rush to such conclusions. And I think you really put your finger on that. Could you just uh, make a yeah. quick comment about what you just said? Yeah. Uh, so I I think it's great you brought up the exa- uh, Plato's example himself about how we um, talk about democracy and what words we have for it. Because I, I thought that's 2000 something, it's 2000 years later, there's uh, it's still quite relevant because um, I, I often, this is something I often find that there's a lot of discourse about democracy these days and people criticizing democracy and like, you know, how it's just like rule of, you know, people who don't know anything and or whatever. And it's just like, but democracy actually takes place in so many different forms. There's so many different structures of it. And so when people criticize democracy, they're, they're, they're just like, they're playing into this prejudice that is just a blanket idea of just, you know, ruled by scary, uneducated people or whatever. <laughs> but you're, you're sort of casting aspersions on democracy through associating with a form in which it doesn't actually really exist in the world. Like in Canada, democracy, democracy means, you know, yes, people have the right to choose their leaders. But there's also a lot of other rights that are involved that protect minorities from, you know, majority vote. And almost like all, all existing democracies actually have this, you know, whether you're talking about democracies in Europe or in Asia, like in Taiwan or Japan or Korea. So this I, I think that's actually a really good example, because I find that in a lot of discourse about democracy, it's actually very hard to talk about democracy in like the abstract, because different states and different um different democratic entities have different voting procedures for instance like some people are like oh democracy sucks because look you know in canada a party can win with like 30 percent of the vote well that's not really a problem with like democracy maybe that's just a problem for a voting system so <laughs> anyway I'm, I'm i think that's a great example because i mean again this is just one example but it's a it's illustrative of how like when people talk about or criticize things they use a word to represent like we're not careful with our words and our concepts. And that just leads to basically kind of pointless discussion because we're, we, we're talking about different things. We haven't defined the thing very carefully like Plato tries to do here in the statesman. Yeah, exactly. We, we need to define the thing that we're talking about before we can engage in a debate about it. And, uh, you know, and, and I think, you know, it, it, I think what you were referring to earlier about the, the discussion about the length of their talk was at 286B, when the visitor says, uh, not least because of the difficulty we found in accepting the length of our talk about weaving. So he's talking about this analogy about uh, the, the fabric of society, making that analogy to weaving a, a cloth. Um, and they discussed it at some length. And that was really just to establish the basis of understanding. And you have to take that time to establish that basis of understanding. But do our current technological tools, which are contributing causes, you know, according to this definition at uh, 281D to E of, of the difference between contributing causes and the cause itself, do our technological tools actually lead us to be able to have that full discussion and to, to make sure that we understand what we're talking about or is a technological tool uh, you know, such as the, the means by which the, you know, the Senator McMorrow's opponent sent out that fundraising letter 
using a technological tool and the fundraising letter just makes this rapid assumption about what the the senator was proposing and and so people then accept that without really taking the time to think about it and that's that's an important thing that we might want to consider about the use of our technology particularly with the democratic process that really requires some form of, of dialogue and making sure that we understand what we're debating about. So thank you for that. And, and we'll go to Steve and then JK. Going back to um, originally what we were talking, the, the contribute he's separating uh, in 28281 uh, DE, separating uh, causes into two categories, the contributory cause, uh, is the cause itself, and then the the tools, or you know, I think this is pretty loosely put. The tools could be a person, could be technology, but then there's things that are are acting on the contributory cause. And what comes to mind from that for me is the um, the Buddhist notion of uh, codependent arising, that everything is dependently arising from everything else. And then uh, he's talking uh, a little bit later on then in uh, 282B and C about combination and separation. So when we were talking about uh, democracy in the many different forms, so it's, it's a common way for us to uh, categorize things. So like if you were to tell your young child, uh, don't go in the street because you might get hit by a car. When you're saying that, you mean trucks, motorcycles, uh, you know, all sorts of vehicles, you know, so you can have a meaning for car, just like you could have a meaning for democracy. And then there can be, there's a combination of different uh, concepts and there's separation into, you know, uh, parliamentary democracy, representative democracy, the different uh, aspects of, of what we were talking about. And, um, that, that leads me to uh, also think about the example you use a lot is that with the qubit about uh, bringing in some of the, you know, philosophies behind uh, quantum mechanics that, you know, that, that's what they're, what they're looking at is the separation of matter and energy and uh, momentum and place. So it's, there's the, you know, you could try to do that separation, but there's a at a certain level you're going to have an uncertainty about where where the separation lies. So that's like, you know, if you 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 look again at the car or a chariot as they would use it in, in the ancient times, you can you know start breaking it apart into the parts, and then the parts can be broken apart into you know the muffler, the carburetor. Then you can break those in the parts. Then you know, you can mark all the parts that are making the, uh, the carburetor and the screws or fuel injector now. And uh, you can break that apart in the atoms. And then you get to the, the point where you can't make a separation any longer, that uncertainty area when you dive that deep. So then it's, again, what I get out of it is with the combination of looking at extremes, then from a... Uh, Buddhist standpoint, that's what Nagarjuna, that's the middle way. So the mean, so that's uh, what I'm hearing is uh, Plato is proposing that you have to look at the whole, you split it into the parts to get a, a better understanding. And then the, the uh, most skillful mean means of uh, proceeding is to, is to use the, the mean. 
Thanks. Thank you. And I, I really like the way that you uh, related that to the Buddhist uh, philosophy. I think you call it codependent arising and looking for the middle way. And, and just, I mean, one thing that I said in my introduction that I think we need to be careful about is that you can take the middle of two extremes as one single point, but you're only taking one, one point uh, that uh, divides two things equally. Whereas with the contributory causes concept, there's a lot more than two things that go into uh, most of most outcomes. And so I think uh, as opposed to a middle point, uh, Plato is talking about the mean, which is the sum of all of the uh, sum of all of the causes divided by the number of inputs uh, to come out with more of what's an average rather than just one single middle point, but it's more of an averaging concept. So, so that's the mean, but I think very much uh, along the lines of what you were uh, talking about in terms of the Buddhist concept there, that it, 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 there is this, this dependency. And in, 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 as, as the visitor from Elia is saying, the dependency is on multiple sources of causes. And sometimes it's just one input that causes one cause or that results in one output. Sometimes it's multiple inputs that uh, cause one output. And so that's where the difficulty comes about when we think that we can just go to two extremes and cut right in the middle. Uh, and that's where the visitor familiar say, no, you can't cut to the extremes. You have to cut based on the mean, which is essentially, you know, maybe just more easily thought of as the average um, in this case. And so I think that's uh, that was a very key concept that, uh, that you brought out. And certainly the qubit is something that I've again included in today's notes that we can talk about uh, maybe in a little bit. Uh, again, about uh, I think where this particular philosophy can be very helpful um, in the application of our technology, because there's a very important decision, I think, that we may need to make with the operation of the qubit, which is how information is going to transfer between people or transmit between people uh, once the quantum technology is perfected. And it's, it's a very important thing to understand there's some philosophy in the operation of this qubit, is, uh, and that's a point that I'll continue to make. So thank you for that, short, Steve. Short reply. Yeah. Um, so maybe um, instead of the mean, the concept might be like a Richard Feynman uh, path intervals, where you're taking the uh, the probabilities of the possibilities, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, to that might be to me that sounded closer to uh, to what you were how you were explaining it. Yes, indeed. Actually, that's a good example, and I've I've forgotten how he referred to it. It's it's. Uh, I think it relates somehow to the sum of all probabilities. Um, but there was a specific term. I, you, you, I will look it up as uh, after you've since you've now reminded me about it. So uh, yeah, very very definitely. I think that's uh, a key concept there. Just before we go to J.K., I'll just briefly read since Steve referred to it that section that two eighty two B to C. And this is just where the visitor is talking about the two types of expertise in every sphere. The word sphere, actually, I found interesting. Um, there, again, a geometric reference uh, that we might want to think about. The visitor says, and there were, we agreed, two sorts of expertise in every sphere, that of combination and that of separation. Well, then, it's to the art of separation that, that belong that of carding and all the things just mentioned. He's talking about the process of, of weaving. For separation in the case of wool and the warp, which happens in different ways, in the first case through the shuttle, in the second through the use of hands, has acquired as many names as we, for, we referred to a moment ago. Then again, by contrast, let's take a part that is simultaneously a part of combination and of wool working and takes place in the latter. 
And whatever parts of separation there were here, let's, let's let all of them go, cutting wool working into two by means of the cut between separation and combination. So there's, there's that distinction between separation and combination. And, uh, you know, maybe there's a specific thing about that in respect of the quantum computer qubit that we might want to think about as well. So I just wanted to read that uh, section that you referred to. It's, uh, I think, an important part about, an important aspect of the visitor is asserting that there is this two sorts of expertise in everything that we do that involves either combination or separation. Uh, so thank you for raising that. And then we'll go to JK. I, uh, I guess that this kind of um, understanding of this process of uh, differentiation and so forth in the various arts and uh, expertise, right, is a form of uh, education, of understanding what makes up a, a, a harmonious society. And, and that that's, that would be important for democracy, right, for democracy that is particularly, especially um, when this uh, democracy is really the what the rule by a majority, but that doesn't mean that the the majority has all the rights and it ignores the rights of the minority because there's an understanding of what the minority in that speech is really concerned about the minority and their rights and uh, and, and the speech is all about disputing the kind of hateful speech that goes into this kind of uh, uh, thinking exploiting the majority, exploiting the, the, the idea of this majority rule to foment hate towards a minority. And, and so it's a way of uh, just doing the opposite of what we're, you know, uh, Plato's taking us through here is to understand all the different parts of that go into the arts, goes into being a statesman, uh, statesman. what goes into uh, the ideal statesman would be someone who understands, uh, right? Understands the uh, all the differentiations and um, uniqueness of the different uh, parts of that make up the whole. So uh, in in our society, I guess in kind of the kind of democracy that we have now, it is supposedly supposedly by the majority, uh, you know, ruled by the majority. But in fact, it's set up so that we end up with a uh, because of the electoral college, I guess, we end up being ruled by by a minority. When it comes to the vote, <laughs> mm. which is kind of uh, ironic, and, and they're the ones who are targeting the real minorities that are in our society, and you know uh, maintaining their power by that means. So, kind of a uh, you know an interesting turn of uh, history. Mm. Yeah. So this is a, this is interesting about how the, uh, this is um, that the um, the statesmanship is supposed to be one who understands this kind of. Uh, a certain way of ruling that uh, that that is you know um, ends up supposed to be uh, more democratic as opposed to you know uh, a uh, dictator who is uh, who who lacks this kind of in depth understanding of what what goes into making a harmonious society. Of course, maybe Plato at that time he saw this, but uh, it wasn't you know, um, and maybe that's why the the idea of the philosopher king was maybe. A, uh, important because Foster King is the one who understands these, uh, this kind of, uh, you know, I ideal. Yeah, I mean, you touched actually on a number of interesting things there when you said, you know, that understanding the parts that make up the whole, and it, that makes me think of the sophists that we covered, uh, you know, last month, or finished covering last month, which is, uh, you know, that that distinction between the parts and the whole, but also the the combination that makes that whole. Uh, and I think that was discussed in, in the context of the forms and the sophist uh, in a quite interesting way. And then you talked about the philosopher ruler, which 
you know, goes back to the, our discussion on the Republic, which started this season. And in particular, uh, it made me think of Socrates' assertion in that, that the first order of knowledge for a philosopher is that of numbering calculation. And so that seems to sort of go logically with what's now being said in the statesman that one must be able to calculate, or the, the, the good statesman must be able to calculate uh, the mean and not just go for the extremes. And so I think that's a, an important point that ties a number of concepts that we see happening in Plato. And then the other thing that you you, you started by saying is, you know, the, the rule of the majority has to recognize the minority, at least in the way that democracy has perhaps been classically defined. But somehow in the world today, it seems that in a number of cases, democracy has been redefined as rule of the majority for the majority and excluding the minorities. And it's all about power uh, and, and gaining power so that one can be in the majority and rule for the benefit of the majority without reference to the minorities. And so, um, you know, maybe this is this authoritarian trend in the world today, but, you know, is there, is there a lesson in Plato's words uh, as, as it relates perhaps to the, to the somewhat angry speech by Senator McMorrow? Uh, how can we bridge this, create this bridge of understanding between people so that there isn't this discord and that there is this harmony? I think it's a, it's such a critical idea for for us to to explore. I think particularly at this point in time, two thousand four hundred years after Plato wrote it, it, it is I think perhaps now more than ever relevant. So uh, so let's let's keep considering that. Um, uh, we'll go to Darren then. So yeah, I just want to respond to what he said because um, I really liked um, that he was emphasizing that Morrow was standing up for minorities even though she's you know in the majority and um try to defend minority rights um because i think this is really important implication for what we mean by the mean when it comes to statesmanship and so how statesmanship i mean we haven't really we still have we still haven't seen what what statesmanship actually is so i'm i'm not sh sure what plato is gonna <laughs> say about it in the final chapter but just going on what uh jk was saying if we if we were to take the mean as just in terms of uh, when when it comes to statesmanship as just what people think and like finding the average of what people think i i, I think that's sort of the rel relativistic kind of averaging that plato says is one kind of measurement in the reading today he makes a distinction between two types or sciences of measurement like one is concerned with uh, measuring the differences between things and then the other one is measuring the difference relative to an ideal standard or the mean. So I, I could see how there might be like different kinds of mean. And if statesmanship was just taking the mean of like everything that people think, then we might not end up with minority rights. <laughs> I think that might be a, like a kind of a superficial understanding of like what having the mean of statesmanship is, is just like taking a poll of all the positions and saying, oh, we're going to choose the middle one. But then the middle one might, but then we might not actually have minority rights if that were the case. You know, think of, think of you know, situation with LGBT like uh, a century ago or even 50 years ago, never mind a century. There's a different kind of science of measurement, Plato says. We're no, we don't really see how this is connected with statesmanship yet. Like he, Plato hasn't directly drawn a connection. He's just presented this idea that there's two sciences of measurement. And another kind of mean re regarding statesmanship could be like whatever the statesman tries to achieve and 
what an what an ideal constitution or state does. And there's a kind of mean there, but that's, I think that's the mean we're looking for, but that's very different than like saying, oh, you know, there's these different sides in the debate. So, you know, we're going to just be the moderate and choose the middle. And that's, I'm not saying like, personally, I'm not saying the moderate is bad. Like sometimes that might actually be that might actually coincide with the other kind of mean of um, actual statesmanship, but like other times the mean of real statesmanship might, you know, diverge from just the mean of taking the literal average of like everyone's views and saying that's the, you know, that's justice or whatever. Anyway, I, I just thought like it was interesting. I just had this thought in relation to what JK was saying that um, like what, what the mean will, will mean when it comes to statesmanship. And, and the, a good thought too, you, you pointed out actually a key part, I think that the, the visitor familiar is making in this is that there are two types of differences. There's the differences between extremes, like two things, one at each extreme, but then there's a difference to the mean. So it's almost like there's two focal points for the statesman, not just one, but two. And I think maybe sometimes in this rush to simplicity now and this rush to uh, erase these um, uh, nuances of meaning in names and words uh, that sometimes uh, statesmen forget that there are two focal points uh, and they try to reduce everything to one focal point. So I think you very well called out that uh, the, 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 the statement that the visitor makes that there are two types of differences uh, and, and they're not equal differences, they're unequal differences. And that's what really makes this weaving together the fabric of society such a, such a difficult thing. Uh, and that's what requires the art and expertise of statesmanship. And certainly, you know, I think in Senator McMorrow's speech, we we saw evidence that there was an attempt by her opponent to almost eliminate a whole class of people. Uh, you know, gay people are not in the majority, therefore they don't have as much rights and we can go ahead and ban discussion about them in schools. And, you know, but, but, you know, we don't do that for the, for the majority, we only do that for the minority. And I think, you know, you, you said, you know, very clearly that, you know, we need to, uh, we need to think about all classes of, of people in that, in that understanding of the, how we deal with differences. And I think that's how you get some sort of harmonious society and, and fabric of society. So thank you for that. And uh, we'll go to Steve and then JK. So in uh, different parts of it, there's a discussion between different types of government. You have the rule of the one, the king, the rule by the oligarch, oligarchy, uh, which is the few, and the democracy. So he, you know, this brings up a lot of the bad points of the rules of the one. And <clears throat> as a comparison of which, what you have to go with, the uh, oligarchy, you could perhaps look at uh, you know, Russia today as an example of that. And so you can see the problems. And I think what um, with the democracy, the rule of the, the mean is not necessarily taking an average point of view all the time, but it's getting to the point where with our discussion is that the majority of the people feel that the minority have basic uh, rights, and they, the majority established protections under law for those type of rights. And it isn't necessarily, um, there's still going to be a vigorous debate among all the members of society about the course of 
the tools and the course of how society should work. Um, there's, I think, a good example. There's a uh, online course from uh, Harvard, Harvard by Michael Sandel called Justice, and he goes through a lot of these uh, hard questions. He goes through them, and what I got out of it as his uh, his sort of answer or his proposal is a John Rawls philosophy, where he takes his, his example of how you uh, should set up your government. You should take your take an example is if you were not born yet and you had to pick the type of government you would want to be born into where you had no control over whether you would be a privileged person or a non-privileged person, what type of government would you pick? So I think that's the example of the, of the mean where you where you have no if you have no prior bias, what type of government would you pick so that you're not going to you're not going to get everything you want, but you're not going to be totally disadvantaged either. Really interesting idea. Um, what type of government would you pick? And I think that's as you said, it, it, it's that free of bias. You know, if you if you could select um, not from not from sort of existing precedents, but from some ideal. What would people expect, and I think what would people select? And I think we have to be conscious of people's inclinations in that sense. And and certainly, if we aim for some sort of harmony, I guess, I guess if we wanted to be tyrants, uh, we wouldn't necessarily care about that. Although, you know, tyranny rarely ends, or I could maybe even say never ends in a good way. But the tyrant, of course, doesn't recognize that because the tyrant isn't given to any sort of philosophical introspection. But, you know, that's the way tyrants are. But if we don't want to be tyrants and we want to live in some sort of harmony, I guess that's the that's the point is that we have to understand what people would choose if they could choose freely. But it's a, it's a good point to, to make and certainly appreciate that. That sounds like a really interesting course. And certainly, you know, you talked about the existence of laws and that's where we kind of end today's reading where uh, young Socrates asks that the ideal rule may exist even without laws was something harder to accept. And that's something that we'll look at uh, in the last section of the statesman is the role of laws and the, the, the question of how laws change over time. And do we want to become fixed with a specific type of constitution that was written at one time, but may, may not be applicable to another time? And, and how do we get that kind of flexibility in laws? Do we erase laws altogether? Or how is how does the statesman interact with the laws? So I think that's a, an important point that we need to keep in mind that you raised for our next session where we'll end the statesman. Um, JK, your thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, following up on that, uh, probably the, uh, the laws, as long as they are very... Um, universal and abstract that they they cover a wide range of, of uh, you know uh, latitude and so uh, through time and space that like in the constitution and you know I'm saying ensuring that all people not just men but all people have the right to uh, life liberty and happiness and so forth you know that but uh, you know even then there there's that has been changed right it has been uh, revised so that you can interpret that in, in so many different ways. But uh, yeah, I, I think the um, the uh, the idea of a statesman, the ideal statesman, is someone you know a government you know uh, with you know that is able to uh, put people in positions of power who uh, is um, someone who 
cares uh, like the like the herdsman, you know that uh, with that the idea with the image of the herdsman who cares for the flock. I mean, the herdsman is someone who cares for the whole flock, not just for the majority, but also for those ones that are maybe a little bit different, someone without bias. So they would include the minority, but someone also who's uh, who could have that kind of skill who has who has experience in the, perhaps in commerce or in in the trades and maybe the merchant could uh, some merchants could qualify for that role as well if they also um, demonstrate that they have that kind of caring for the whole as well as the parts so the idea of democracy would be something maybe more pluralistic in which would uh, take into account um, you know not just certain groups or but it, you know, it considers all all the groups that have uh, equal or you know uh, rights to um, seek happiness. And the word pluralistic that you use makes me think of multiplication. You know, if we wanted to go a little bit more mathematical, and and how does one deal with multiples of different things? Um, and you know, again, I think that's the the point that's being made. I've got this highlight on the screen that we can read shortly uh, from two eighty three D to two eighty four C, which I think is critical to this section of the statesman to understand what is being said in this particular part. Uh, and so I'd ask for maybe a volunteer to read one of the one of the roles. I could read the other if you want, but uh, but I think it would be good to read through this and just understand this this concept of dealing with multiples. But you know you talked about or you you brought us back to the analogy of the herdsman, which has been used in in this um, dialogue as well as in others. And and the word caring, which I think is is important, and you know if if you're if you're a wise herdsman, uh, you'll understand that the health of the flock ultimately is your own health. Uh, I mean, if you're making your living uh, from guiding the flock, and the flock disappears or the flock becomes pulled apart at the seams or you know, at odds with each other, you know, it's it's then not healthy for the herdsman. The herdsman will not make as good a living out of leading a flock that's at odds with itself. And I think that was a, an important analogy that you provided. Again, we're dealing with weaving in this particular part of the of the dialogue, but uh, I just wanted to recall that in the in our previous session, um, the states the, the or the visitor familia, said that analogy is is often the best way to understand complex ideas. And so complexities cannot be boiled down into simple statements. Um, and I think this is maybe one of the problems that we're dealing with today in the level of discord that's increasing in, uh, in, in ruling of people, is that I think there are a lot of complex ideas and a lot of complexities in living today maybe some of them arising from technology, which has unleashed a whole set of new circumstances and opportunities, which were not originally envisaged in constitutions written hundreds of years ago, that these complexities can somehow be boiled down to a very simplistic sort of approach, whereas it, it doesn't seem to be working that way. And, and you know, as the visitor said in, in, our, in the, se- the section that we covered last time, in the case of complexity, analogy is sometimes the best way to understand, and maybe that's what a uh, maybe that's what a good statesman does is use analogy. You know, as the visitor here is using the analogy of weaving, and in the previous section, use the analogy of the herdsman. Uh, maybe this is a, actually a way that we can come to some sort of common ground of understanding uh, about what we're talking about, so that we can actually make the social fabric work. You know, with that sort of understanding. So thank you for raising those points. We'll go to Darren. 
Yeah. So what was uh, interesting also about the analogy about the method of analogy is that uh, we learned this week that it's not just um, because things are complicated um, that or, or the you know the heart he he calls them you know the harder more difficult and longer syllables of life because things become more complicated and we 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 might see glimpses of the truth and the simpler things and then you know once we get the bigger things you know we get sort of we're out at sea he says we get swamped and um, you know that's probably where you know good measurement also comes in whatever we mean by that um, but. This week we also see that um, I thought this was such a provocative passage. I think it's I think it's in your document too, um, at two eight six a, where he talks about how there, like there are things that can be straightforward to understand, and ult- like ultimately um, because you can just point to them. Like ultimately, you know, there's a result in which there's an image. He says that's that can be wrought plainly for human vision. And things, things, some things have sensible resemblances, which are easily perceived. And it's not at all difficult to show them when anyone wishes in response to request for an explanation of some one of them to exhibit them easily without trouble and really without explanation. So there, you know, there are things in the world we can see. And I feel like a lot of science could actually fall into that. I mean, not all science, maybe, um, but like a lot of it, because it come if it comes down to an experiment, you can show like, well, you know, look at like this the result. I mean, we sort of do rely on that. That's why they're empirical scientists. Um, but then he says, but the highest things, the most important things, the stuff we're interested in, like the stuff that we're supposedly we're interested in in this dialogue of what they're talking about. He says those things have no image, and the only way to grasp them is to give an account of them like through verbal means because there's nothing and like i think the suggestion like in so many dialogues maybe all of them is that we're talking about the good basically that you know the the what like what that is and how there's no or justice perhaps in the case of the statesman and how there's no like there's no actual image thing you can point to that say that is justice but it is it seems to be the thing that like all our or at least a certain set of actions like such as regarding the state points to that is uh, difficult uh, elsewhere. He says that like, you know, things that are troublesome and difficult in practice. And so, um, yeah. So anyway, th- that's like, that's really the only part I wanted to make is that how like the, we, we saw before in the, in the last, last time that the analogy was important for us to gain knowledge about more complicated things. Like he says, that's actually our situation in knowledge. And it was so interesting because he said that even the method of analogy, he needs to use an analogy to show um, how, what that means, how that works. It was like, oh, we're just stuck in this situation. We just have these analogies, analogies for more complicated things at least. Mm-hmm. And then, um, but then here this time, we also like this, I thought this was interesting that that passage I just read, right? Where he says that, well, this method and other methods perhaps are also are needed because there are things things that we just can't simply point to and be like, hey, there's there, you know, that's the result, that's the truth. That like the most important things are invisible in a way, and we can't just like mm-hmm. look at them. So mm-hmm. we need analogies and other things to sort of and maybe that's what the myth is there for too, right? Myth is another way to get us to um like attune ourselves to like higher things that uh, we don't we can't literally point to a god. Like I don't think that's what they're saying. Like the myth is a myth. Uh, but it's like to get us through again the verbal means to have a sense of maybe the the highest ideals of justice. Very interesting uh, connection there to myth, and and certainly Plato uses myth a lot. You know, at the end of the Republic, there was a myth of Ur. Uh, in the Sophist, there was a whole story of the creation of the universe. 
you know, it, it's really interesting actually that uh, in, in the way you you tie that to analogy, I think that was that was really interesting. And then, you know, you also again brought us back to two eighty six a. You know, the statement that the things are that are without body, which are the finest and greatest, are shown clearly only by verbal means and by nothing else. And this, you know, just I, I'll remind what I said in the introduction about that um, ancient Greece declassified podcast episode why people hate Plato. And, and in that episode, the, um, the host Lantern Jack makes the point that one of the reasons people hate Plato is because uh, of the way they perceive that he has a disdain for empirical evidence. And I think maybe that that's a perception in any event, but you know, the, the way science goes now is that we want to prove things empirically but some things cannot be proven empirically. And I think that's what the, that's the point that the visitor from Elia is making at 286A. Some things simply cannot be proven empirically, such as the things that are without body, the invisible things. Um, and, you know, those are the things of the mind, the, the, the that part of the universe that is not physical, and, and certainly the soul. And that's why I think Plato focuses so much on the soul, is the soul is invisible and it's not subject to empirical proof. But that's the trouble that people have with Plato is that that trouble that we, you know, we are surrounded by things that we can see. We are surrounded by, you know, data that the five senses deliver to us. And we, we default to thinking that that is all there is. And then we forget what's inside us, which is invisible, which is the soul. And that's, uh, that's what the statesman, I think, in particular needs to remember is that uh, there is something that is without definition in each of us. And the, the fabric of society depends on bringing some harmony to that which is otherwise without definition. Steve, your thoughts? Wondering if you are, are going to get to uh, the, what do you think the forms are, your moderator's position? The, mm-hmm. the last line of that has really intrigued me. Being just as at all time, its own derivative. And uh, just curious if you're using that in a mathematical way also. Yes, I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll remind people, this is a, a proposition I brought out uh, a few episodes ago, what do you think the forms are? And I've repeated it in the front page of, of today's notes. And I do, I, I do use that kind of in a mathematical sense uh, perspective. So what I've said in my proposition is that the forms are the means by which our minds in the eternal realm of being recall the logical order of cause and difference in the variable state of coming to be of the present to which all physical objects are limited. The forms are geometric, but in order to provide the mind a complete account of the physics of the coming to be of the forms, of the coming to be, the forms neither exist in nor affect the geometric limits of space and time that define the present. There are no physics in eternal being, which has neither past nor future, and therefore no present to divide it into two parts. Being, which is in the domain of the mind, is one without limit, having capacity for neither increase nor decrease in its infinite density, being just is at all times its own derivative. And that's what I propose. And by being its own derivative, you know, there is a mathematical object, which is its own derivative, which is the base of the natural logarithm we use, we denote by the, by the letter E, um, that's in two dimensions. And then it's got a three-dimensional analog, the Riemann zeta function, and in four dimensions, it's the gamma function. Uh, that is its own derivative. It relies on nothing else for its cause. It is its own derivative. Uh, there is no other cause of that. And so in the context of Plato's cosmology, which you know really, uh, I think, heavily depends on an, on an appreciation of what he says 
in the Timaeus, uh, and in particular at 28a in the Timaeus, that distinction between that which always is and never come, never becomes, which he's referring to as being, and that which always becomes but never is, which is the present. Uh, the present is ever changing, and it never reaches a full aspect of being. And I think to understand Plato, one has to really understand that distinction, and and that you know the the being. You know, I think Darren referred to it in in what he said. You know, the there are things that we cannot see. We don't see the realm of being. The realm of being is only intelligible. It's it's not visible, uh, and that's a point that Plato makes a number of times through a number of dialogues. That there is this part of the universe that is only intelligible and not visible. And I think that's, you know, where we struggle because we are surrounded by the visible and we tend to therefore think that that is all there is. Uh, but there is this realm of being, it's eternal, uh, it's changeless, uh, it's cannot increase or decrease because it is everything to start off with. And, and that's where we really need to, we cannot, our minds cannot grasp that precisely, but we have to grasp it by some means, by reason, which is, you know, one of the faculties of the soul, and by analogy. And I'd love to talk to people about, you know, this idea of what the forms are. This is my proposition. I'd like to hear from other people what they think about this and and if they've got alternative propositions, but I think it really does have to relate to the order of logic of cause and difference. And I really think that that's, um, you know, as I reflect on it more, I, I just keep coming up to that conclusion more and more. So I'm open to discussion on that. Um, Darren, your thoughts. So I just want to go back to um, the thing you said earlier um, about um, why people hate Plato um, <laughs> and tie this, and also tie this in with like the discussion of like what's invisible here. Um, so you mentioned that. So I haven't listened to that podcast. I will, de- I will definitely listen to it. I just haven't had the ch- yeah. time yet. Well, I highly um, recommend it. Yeah. yeah, it sounds great. Um, so... But you 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 said that apparently people don't like Plato because they think he's um, like because he be, precisely because he like they think he's all about the invisible and ignores the empirical or dismisses the empirical and practical aspects of life. I think what is interesting and provocative in Plato is actually that so he says so as, as we you know discussed earlier that. You know, he thinks the highest, the highest things are invisible, and in this dialogue, that seems to, he seems to be, you know, hinting at something like justice or something like that, um, and only can be understood through these other means to sort of get us closer to it, um, like myth or analogy. But I think actually maybe what's even more provocative uh, as a thesis is that I think he thinks that the invisible exists in precisely in those empirical and practical interests we have. And I think that this comes through in um, the reading today. So I think he's suggesting that if we pay attention, that in actual practice, that this like this sense, this consciousness that there is something that's ideal and invisible that is real, actually, that is grounded in actual practice in the arts. Um, so again, this comes back to the difference he makes, uh, the distinction he makes between like the two kinds of measurement. There's one kind that just relative, like it's just a relative kind of difference between different things exist and you just sort of measure them. Um, and there could be many different kinds of, kinds of things. And then the other kind of measurement is um, between, uh, is relative to an ideal standard. And the way he talks about this at first is, uh, I'm just going to read some uh, some quotes I 
I copied here. So he says that 284B, all these arts. So by arts, he's talking about, you know, all the things he often, I think he's referring to in the law of dialogues, like shoemaking and building ships and stuff like that. And, you know, weaving. All these arts are doubtless careful about excess and deficiency in relation to the standard of the mean. So their arts are, you know, that rely on the second kind of measurement, not the first relativistic kind. Uh, so, and I'll keep reading here. They regard them not as non-existent, but as real difficulties in actual practice. And it is in this way, when they preserve the standard of the mean, that all their works are good and beautiful. So I guess that what's, what jumps out to me, he says that this, this kind of excess and deficiency is a real difficulty in actual practice. Like the sophists only work, work, works in words, right? It's like they can say whatever they want. It's like the, that, that speech you presented, like uh, she talks about how opponent, I forget what her name is, you know, the Republican probably um, is just says, you know, who's accusing her of, of uh, various things that she's just like grooming children or whatever that she can just like, they're just words. They're just sort of empty words or what she says, whatever they want. Uh, she can say whatever she wants, but, but it's only in, but actually doing something and trying to accomplish something that we get the sense that there is these ideal standards. I actually, I, I also want to like point out that like this, this move that Plato makes here, actually, it reminds me of a lot of things he says elsewhere, like in the Republic, um, in the first book of the Republic and elsewhere, when, like when, when people don't think there's like, for, for instance, in the book one of the Republic, the, the topic is whether justice exists and Thrasymachus like thinks all there exists is power. There's no justice. It's just power, you know, power to create a narrative, power to do whatever, even power to define justice. And I think Socrates changes the conversation to like shipbuilding or something. Cause it's, it's like when we're actually trying to do something that there's that there is this sort of consciousness that dawns on us that there is something that's ideal and the ideal, the thing that you're trying to accomplish, you actually can't point to it anywhere. Like when you're trying to build something like that hasn't existed yet, that's going to be an ideal that actually doesn't exist anywhere in the world yet. That's actually in a way, like in a sense, sort of non-empirical and you sort of have to sort of follow a train of thought somehow, however we do this to get to some, something that's beautiful and good as, as Plato says here in that passage I read. So anyway, uh, yeah, that's basically what I pretty much my <laughs> attempt at saying how the ideal, like certainly the highest things, I think Plato does think that they're in a way they're sort of abstract, like justice. And you can't just point to something and be like, oh, that's justice. And so we need other means to understand it. I think Plato is, as we see in a lot of dialogues, like Plato understands that even in the practical arts, like even though some people are like want to make this like maybe this is one another one of these careless distinctions between the empirical and then the ideal and you know oh you know the, this is all a philosophy we just have to go back and forth but i think plato is actually says a lot of places that the ideal actually exists in practice and in actual practice and it's actually people like sophists who just like maybe certain species of philosophers could be counted here uh who are just like it's just like i'll talk right then it's like okay then it never it never hits ground you can just say whatever you want it's just words right yeah, so yeah I, I think, and, and you summarize that well, and, and certainly you, the part that you read just kind of leads up to this reading that I've got here on the screen, which is from 238 or 283D to 284C, um, which we can just do here in a minute. Um, but, you know, I just wanted to um, highlight what you said about, you know, the good and, and the beautiful, which are Plato's concepts of of, of kind of the highest order of things. Um, and, and certainly, um, you know they they are hard to 
to grasp grasp they are abstractions and you know we live in a world where maybe we don't deal with abstractions as well as we might have previously in history because we have become more materialistic and and less focused on the immaterial and far more focused on the material and you're not going to find uh, any absolute definition of the good and the beautiful in the material um so I think that's uh, that that's a point that you made, and then you you know you you did make the point that the ex- the invisible exists, and that makes me recall the first part of the philobus that we discussed um, back earlier in the season, where uh, the point was made that there are measures of both the limited and the unlimited in everything, and the limited is is the physical, right? Everything physical has a limit. And the unlimited is the metaphysical or, or that which has no body, which is what uh, the visitor familia is saying at 284 or 286 uh, A. So uh, I think those are important points that you that you raised. And then also the idea that, um, you know, the that which is not empirical maybe relates to the imagination and, and you know, the imagination has no, no limit maybe. So the imagination is some sort of continuum that, uh, just keeps going, and you know maybe that's where we really need to to understand the power and, and grasp that. So, um, so thank you for that. And then we'll go to Steve, and then let's let's do this reading after Steve. Steve, going back to uh, you know your uh, question on the forms, talking about um, visible and the in, invisible. Um, you talk if you. Uh, talk about that as perceptions and say there's the phenomenal and the nominal. So the the phenomenal is everything you can touch, hear, feel, see. And then the nominal is the things that, you know, are happening in the brain that is, or in the mind, I'm sorry, in uh, that is ideas, concepts, the forms. Um, If if you look at it from the, like the aspect of, how these developed, that they're biological adapt- adaptations. You know, the vision is was helpful for, you know, it, it uh, was natural selection and, you know, vision was useful. So it, it became a part of what we are. And uh, so the same way, so are um, most of the uh, functions of the mind are like an iceberg. Most of them are controlling programs, let's say, or algorithms, like the feedback loop from that touch feel, how we're, how we're getting uh, those nominal perceptions, uh, running our livers, our, our breathing, our heart. So there's a lot of uh, the nominal uh, going on that we never see. The part we see is uh, assimilation of, of the world. So this organism, the human is homo sapien is it creates a uh, simulation of the world. So it, it, it allows it to function in the world. Uh, you know, you get feedback loops of, of what's going on. You see a car, you don't walk in front of the car. It gets to higher orders about types of government and how the, this organism can best su- su- survive. So I don't think that in my view, there's no forms per se. I think, Forms are a concept that this, you know, living organism has developed in its simulation. So it's just it's just part of that simulation. It's if you had, you know, totally different beings based on totally different 
um, you know, maybe not even, um, you know, organic, maybe beings of, you know, totally different structures or that those, you know, forms that, that we have come up with wouldn't, would not exist at all. So my, my view is that the forms are, uh, are a concept. Thank you. And I, I think I would agree with that. I mean, I've, um, in my proposition, I've said that the forms neither exist in nor affect the geometric limits of space and time. I think they're a way that we read those geometric limits. They're kind of like a reflection of those geometric limits. And that's what the mind uses to understand the geometry of space and time that's going on. So I think that's, that's uh, I, I think we're in agreement on that. The, and, and I really like the way you, you've made that distinction between the phenomenal and nominal and you, you use the analogy of the mind being like an iceberg taking feedback, which I think is is also very much in line with what I'm thinking about in terms of the form is that that feedback mechanism. And you said that we see a representation or a simulation. That makes me think of Timaeus 37E, I think it is, where, um, where Timaeus said that the uh, creator made a moving image of eternity. And because, because, the, the infinite being itself is capable of neither increase nor decrease, but we live in this realm of this physical realm where, which is subject to increase and decrease, which is subject to differences, right? But the, the, you know, the eternal is not subject to that. So what we live in is a representation or an image of that. And I think that's what comes clearly through in, in Timaeus 37E. There's some geometry in there as well with respect to circles, which is a theme that keeps coming up in, in Plato. But I think that we have to understand that, uh, that we are not infinite beings ourselves, but we are part of a system that has infinite being in it. And that's Timaeus 2080, that distinction between that which always is and never becomes, i.e. the infinite being, versus that which always becomes but never is in terms of being an infinite being, and that's in the present, and that's where we are. Uh, and again, I think that that's so absolutely fundamental to understanding what Plato is saying and the role of the mind. Uh, and I think it's actually very powerful, but I think if it's not understood that people then start to dis dismiss Plato on the basis of being some sort of anti-empiricist and uh, telling us that, uh, that we are not capable of being rulers because we're not philosophers, and then he becomes seen as an elitist. And um, in any event, that Ancient Greece Declassified podcast episode, Why People Hate Plato, he starts with um, talking about a speech that Plato made, <laughs> Plato's one and only speech, apparently, and it did not go down well, and maybe it's because uh, he was misunderstood, so, uh, or maybe that could just be a, a bit of an apocryphal story, so. Um, JK, and then let's do the reading. JK? Yeah, I just wanted to follow up on uh, what Steve was saying about uh, the forms and how that, uh, you know, the idea of the forms might relate to uh, evolutionary theory. And, you know, it made me think of uh, Bergson, Henry Bergson's um, creative evolution. And the idea that, um, you know, um, the you know, uh, we live in a world where everything is the manifestation, perhaps some of something, you know, um, some form. And, you know, animals are endowed with these instincts so that they don't they never they never seek because they always they always find but humans humans are endowed with um, with an intellect that's always always seeks but never finds and so it's just the opposite of what instincts are but, but maybe there's a kind of a um, you know a continuum there you know because we 
also have certain capabilities for behavior that is, is you know that is closer to instinct than, than intellect, and we have intuitions and so forth. So it's it's kind of interesting, um, you know, um, maybe a you know a reiteration on this uh, this idea of forms that, that maybe it's it's in the process of duration. It's in the um, the idea of that uh, person's uh, duration, intuition, and uh, and instincts and so forth. I like that. It's it's. Um... Human intellect always seeks but never finds, and that means that we're always at this state of incompletion, which to me is that that's our potential for agency. You know, if we ever reached a state of completion, like if we reach some sort of algorithmic perfection and, you know, we could predict the future absolutely, then what would be the point of living? We would have no agency at that point. So uh, it's this living in this state of imperfection, but uh, that allows us always to seek makes me think of the Mino where um, Socrates, you know, it says it's, it's almost the, the, the only imperative that's, that I remember Socrates saying, he says, never cease to seek and, and learn. Um, I think that's the, the message that, uh, that I got from that. And, you know, knowledge being the account of the reasons why, which is uh, what's said in the Mino as well. You know, we're always making that account. And in the course of making the account, we're adding to the account. Uh, it's kind of this noun verb paradox of logos, um, you know, that, that the account is always, is never complete. So, um, so yeah. thank you for that. Also, the, um, the idea of the eternal objects, you know, that um, Whitehead points out um, that in, in this process of um, seeking and, and uh, occasions of experience, you know, mm -hmm. we are also, um, you know, creating um, eternal objects which might be something like the forms that are not just there, but, but, but that are just uh, constantly being created and recreated. Interesting. Like we're, we're building these objects in the course of our, of our thought process. I like that. Um, go to Darren briefly, if, if you could, and then yeah, we'll, we'll sure. do the reading. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just want to jump off for like what JK was saying about um, the mind seeking, but never arriving. So what um, that reminded me of was um, the image from the Phaedrus where uh, we're drawn by this force of like love or passion um, towards beauty, truth, and goodness. Um, like we see things that um, we fall in love with in, on, on, on this planet and, the, and then that, that is what draws us towards a discovery of those forms. And um and, but how like once like once we but we never actually arrive at those forms so the sort of the the speech presents a view of how like we get closer we we rise up and we get closer to the form so we but when we're like in heaven or whatever we like we're like circling around the forms like it's never just a still sort of like grasping of it it's like we just continue moving around the forms and um sort of like bathing in them in a way in, in their light in a way and um, so that's, I know that that's just the image that evokes that like, there's these ideals that we like long for. And, um, and, you know, the most, in fact, the most powerful of our passions, like love, um, like draws towards that. And then, but it's never something we get to. It's like, it's, it's like, these are these ideals that we um, aspire to, but. I like that, the, the image of bathing in the forms. I like that. That's uh <laughs> I don't know. That was probably really cheesy, but no, it's, it's good. <laughs> that's it's, not. It wasn't Plato's, but it was well, that's just the. I, that's just the image I get of like yeah. you know, well, getting I mean, closer to them and circling yeah. around them, but never actually. Yeah, and yeah. It just sort of apprehending them in motion, yeah. but not like 
not just like it's not a dead thing right mm -hmm. it's like our our interest in the ideals and the forms is not like just like we sit there at the desk it's like we're like emotion and it's like it's, it's a kind of motion towards and drawing and being drawn towards it so and, and you know you're, you you practice the art of analogy which uh, is very much relevant to this dialogue and a lot of Plato's other dialogues and I really like here the way in our whole discussion today we're really bringing in concepts from multiple dialogues of Plato which I think is important to understand the weaving together of his whole uh, understanding of the fabric of the universe which includes the invisible soul as much as it includes the physically visible and so i think that's that's very key to uh, to appreciate to appreciate and, and you know that it doesn't come through in just one single dialogue it comes through in the in the whole uh, lot of dialogues that, that plato presents to us so it, it's something that is not easily understood from just one dialogue so I've got on the screen here 283D to 284C, which includes, as I said, you know, the, the part in 284, which I think is really key to understanding this whole concept of the mean. And in this, uh, in this excerpt, I have replaced the translator's use of the term uh, in due measure, which I think is rather vague term. And I would think Plato maybe would not have used that vague term. So I think there may be a little bit of a an issue in the translation there, at least for my understanding of the meaning. And I, I, I replaced that term with uh, the translation that Harold N. Fowler introduced in the 1921 edition uh, with, with the word or the term the mean, which I think is very much more geometric and mathematical. And I think Plato would have used something along that line. So uh, when we read this, let's just replace the, the Indu measure with the term the mean. And I think it makes a lot more sense. So um, I can play the role of the visitor if somebody would take on um, young Socrates, Taryn, perhaps. Sure. I, if, does, if no one else wants to do it, yeah, I can do it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll, we'll volunteer. How's that? <laughs> and it, yeah. Okay. I, I think I only have to say yes, like one or two times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So I'll start then I'll, I'm taking the role of the visitor. Uh, first, then, let's look at excess and deficiency in general, so that we may distribute praise and censure proportionately on each occasion when things are set at greater length than necessary and when the opposite occurs in discussions like the present one. If we talked about these things, I think we'd be proceeding correctly. What things? Well, about length and brevity and excess and def deficiency in general. I suppose the art of measurement relates to all of these. Yes. Then let's divide it into two parts. That's what we need towards our present objective. Please tell me how we should divide it. Well, this way, one part will relate to the association of greatness and smallness with each other. The other to what coming into being necessarily is. What do you mean? Does it not seem to you that by its nature, the greater has to be said to be greater than nothing other than the less and the less in its turn, less than the greater and nothing else. It does. What about this? Shan't we also say that there really is such a thing as what exceeds the mean and everything of that sort in what we say or indeed in what we do? Isn't it just in that respect that those of us who are bad and those who are good most differ? It seems so. In that case, we must lay it down that the great and the small exist and are objects of judgment in these twin ways. It is not as we said just before that we must suppose them to exist only in relation to each other, but rather as we have said now, that we should speak of their existing in one way in relation to each other and in another in relation to the mean. Do we want to know why? Of course. 
if someone will admit the existence of the greater and everything of this sort in relation to nothing other than the less, it will never be in relation to the mean. You agree? That's so. Well, with this account of things, we shall destroy, shan't we? Both the various sorts of expertise themselves and their products, and in particular, we shall make the one we're looking for now, statesmanship, disappear, and the one we said was weaving. For I imagine all such sorts of expertise guard against what is more and less than the mean, not as something which is not, but as something which is and is troublesome in relation to what they do. It is by preserving measure in this way that they produce all the good and fine things they do produce. Of course. If then we make the art of statesmanship disappear, our search after that for the knowledge of kingship will lack any way forward. Very much so. Is it the case then that just as with the sophist we compelled what is not into being as well as what is, when our argument escaped us, us down that route, so now we must compel the more and the less in their turn to become measurable not only in relation to each other, but also in relation to the coming into being of the mean. For if this has not been agreed, it is certainly not possible for either the statesman or anyone else who possesses knowledge of practical subjects to acquire an undisputed existence. Well, thank you for that, Darren. And, and you know, I think this, this reading calls into or calls us to re remember what you said earlier, uh, you know, this idea that there are these two differences that we are measuring to. There's the differences to the extreme, but then there's also the difference to the mean, which takes into account and the word account is used here in this ex in this excerpt, takes into account uh, not just the, the extremes, but also all of the other causes that contribute to all of the things that exist between the extremes, so that if we focus only on the extremes, we miss out everything in between. And that's where the real potential of existence is, is it's everything in between the extremes. The extremes are just the limits. You know, we don't, we don't ever reach the extremes, but it's everything in between the extremes that counts. And I think I think what he's saying here is that it's the it's the mean it's it's that the, the greatest power the greatest potential is in the mean and you know the extremes are always changing you know it's uh, um, certainly in terms of politics uh, you know what we now call the far right and the far left is not what we would have called the far right and the far left back you know perhaps in the 1970s when I was growing up there was a very different concept of the far right and the far left. So the extremes then were very different. So the extremes always change over time. And to be to, to think that we can just look at the extremes at any particular point in time, uh, we're missing all of what exists in between, which is the mean and all that's contributed to the, the construction of the mean over time. And I think it's a very, it's a very, the, the mean is a very time dependent thing. And I think that's maybe what we, uh, are losing some of now in in terms of the speed that technology is taking us in we're losing some of that uh, understanding of things over time causes over time that have led to to the way things exist now so just wondering what people think about that that reading and again this idea of uh, of cutting to the mean and not to the extremes and how that relates to statesmanship so darren your thoughts I, I find it really fascinating, the very last um, thing from that passage where he brings the sophist, the, the dialogue, the sophist back into the picture. And he says, uh, so I'm using actually a slightly different translation here, like the one I mentioned in the, uh, in the, in the chat at the Toronto Philosophy Meetup. Um, so he says, so the sophist, he says he established the conclusion that not being exists since that was the point at which we had lost our hold of the argument. 
Um, so now, so here in this dialogue, we must force the second conclusion that the greater and the less are to be measured in relation not only to one another, but also to the establishment of the standard of the mean. Um, like this is really interesting because it's almost like flagging what he's trying to establish or something important he's trying to establish in these dialogues. And what I what I sort of see is going on is that because supposedly, as as he's also been flagging, there's supposed to be a third dialogue called a philosopher, but it never actually arrives. <laughs> so maybe it's implicit in what's going on already. Um, so I feel like what's happening is, I mean, pending you know the rest of the dialogue, which I haven't read yet, that these are like the pieces of uh, what we need to do philosophy. Like these are the pieces of philosophical understanding. So in the sophist. He provided these like arguments for the nature of difference and not being how that's basically what uh, not being is different. And but he's saying here, right, like as we saw in the distinguish uh, distinction between the two kinds of measurement that we just read about that. No, but there's there's this other thing that we need that we have in the picture that wasn't apparent in the sophist that there is actual and that be beyond just like differences that there is such a thing as I as he says here, the ideal standards or the standard of the mean. So I feel like that's like maybe another piece of the puzzle for what we need to be philosophical and like, or to, or to get philosophy rolling. I don't know. That's just my, that's just a thought I had that it's interesting that, you know, explicitly brings the dialogue itself back into the picture. The other one, the other dialogue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, it's that line that, uh, is it the case then that just as with the sophist, we can tell what is not being, what is, what is not into being as well as what is. Um, and so there's, there's that reference to the sophist in which the visitor addresses Parmenides' interdiction against saying or thinking that which is not. Uh, it's, that's an impossible refutation of that which is. You can't refute that which is. But, but by going through the nature of the forms in the sophist, we learn that the form of the different pervades all of the other forms. And it's that difference that gives rise to what we call that which is not, which is really, it's not a negation of existence, it's a negation of a specific thing, and it just means that it's something other than the specific thing. So when we say something is not, we're, we can't say that, that, it, that there is non-existence, we can only say that it is different from something else. So that's what is not means in terms of what Parmenides is telling us in the sophist or what they're they're talking about Parmenides uh, poem that the fragment of Parmenides poem that you cannot say that which is not in in a refutation of existence you can say that which is not as a means of saying that which is different and and you know for those who want I have um, included in the end of my uh, notes here for today uh, excerpts from the sophist 255c to 257b that particular train of logic um, that that uh, the visitor familia uses to explain the forms and the interaction of the forms, uh, which is key to understanding, I think, what what Plato's whole concept of the forms is, uh, and I'm I, th I think that needs to be well understood. And again, that's something that you cannot get from any single dialogue of Plato's. But when you read all of the dialogues in their totality, then I think that's that starts to become a lot clearer that that uh, 255C to 257B in the sophist. So, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's this, this mean that develops. And, you know, I think in the last part of, uh, of today's reading, you know, I've highlighted 287B to 287E, you know, the, this understanding of how different forms of government or constitutions arise 
when there's this unequal uh, division uh, of expertise and unequal uh, sources of causes and and effects. And I think that's that's where we'll get into in our next episode when we look at those different forms of government. Uh, and it's it's a very important discussion. You know, I think we we are having a lot of constitutional challenges now, presently. You know, certainly in terms of democracy, which seems to be trending in a number of countries across the world towards authoritarianism. Um, and you know, how do we bring that back? Maybe it's not a case of restoring what we once thought was democracy. Maybe it's a case of developing a new concept of democracy and maybe applying a different name to it so that we can distinguish it from that which was, but you know, something that is derived based on a mean and based on a mean that has developed over time, you know, and, and something that, uh, uh, you know, deals with this excess and deficiency, which gave rise to this part that we just read in 283D to 284C. So, you know, how do we deal with excess and deficiency in anything? Um, and, and the visitor here is saying, look to the mean. So there's, there's two different focuses of measurement here, the measurement to the extremes, but also the measurement to the mean. Uh, and the mean, as you said, Darren, is kind of held here as the standard. And, and if we don't measure, if we don't understand that there's different differences in those two measurements, uh, then we're missing, all, then we're missing I, I think, essentially the potential. I think there's some mathematics and geometry in that statement that we could explore if anybody's interested at some point. Um, there's certainly some geometry and, and mathematics in that. So does this idea come through with some clarity then, the, the, the idea of the mean? And again, I, I, I've replaced that, the, the, the one particular translation that I've been using, I've replaced the term in due measure with the other translation, the alternative translation, uh, which is the mean, because I, I, I do think the mean really explains much more clearly what's being uh, spoken about here, is that it is some form of averaging, some form of averaging over time, Yes. Is the idea of the mean uh, in the forms or one of the forms? That's a very good question. Yeah, I'd have to think about that. But I, th I think, you know, when, the, when we think back to the five key forms uh, that were discussed in the sophist, that which is change, rest, the same and the different, I think, I think actually the mean, it's an interesting challenge, JK. I think the, the mean could actually be almost defined from the existence of those five forms. Certainly in, in the sense that the different pervades all of the forms. I think that's maybe a key concept where, where the mean comes through. And I think certainly in the divided line, which I've featured on, so the divided line is in the Republic and that featured in our first episode this season, the divided line at 509D to 511B, you know, the mean is discussed there. So I, I think there is some consistency in, in Plato's use or, or references to the means in terms of the forms. I'll just maybe just read that, that brief part from the Republic about the divided line. So this is the, the divided line, which gives rise to the four levels of cognition, which I think, again, is very well explained in that uh, Why People Hate Plato podcast episode. But here uh, in the Republic, 509D to 511B, it said, understand then that, as we said, there are these two things, one sovereign of the intelligible kind in place and the other of the visible is like a divided line into two unequal sections. So again, they're dealing with unequal inequality here as, as they are in the statesman, two unequal sections, 
then divide each section, namely that of the visible and that of the intelligible in the same ratio as the line. So again, they're talking about ratio, which, which the mean is. In terms now of the relative clarity and opacity, one subsection of the visible contains uh, consists of images and the other subsection of the visible put the originals of these images, namely the animals around us, all the plants and the whole class of manufactured things. Would you be willing to say that as regards truth and untruth, the division is in this proportion? So again, reference to ratio. As the opinable is to the knowledge, so the likeness is to the thing that is like. And then he goes on further to talk about the process of cognition. Um, so I think that was an interesting use of proportion and understanding of the mean. And that's why uh, I've put a diagram here on my the cover page of the notes of the golden ratio. Uh, you've got two unequal sections, A and B. And, and the golden ratio is the how these two unequal sections relate to each other. The two unequal quantities relate, relate to each other equally in combination, only in combination. Again, a term that's used in this in the statesman in the golden ratio uh, as A plus B over A equals A over B. Uh, so unequal, unequal things can equal, but only in the context of ratio. And I think that's an important point that comes through in that concept, particularly of the golden ratio. So, and, and used in the divided line in the Republic, used here in, in the Statesman uh, in terms of ratio and proportion. And I think, you know, as you asked JK, I think also it's implicit in the five key forms that are discussed in the Sophist. So thank you for that question. We have just a few minutes remaining. We'll go to Darren and then Steve. So I want to take a stab at uh, JK's question. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't really even know what Plato <laughs> thinks about the forms because, uh, you know, it's not really presented as a positive, you know, full-blown theory anywhere. But I think the, the mean is, could be said to be related to the forms in, in, in a way because um, he says that, I mean, insofar as they're ideal, I mean, if, if, we're, if we understand forms as anything that sort of is an ideal that exists, at, um, that governs, you know, the things on at least at least and through this dialogue the things that we're trying to do and accomplish and you know in the if we understand forms that way it's simply something that's a standard that's immaterial and you can't point to and see but it's sort of like governs what we're doing then yeah i guess like i i think the mean is is related to the forms then um so he says that there's something i uh 284 e i thought this was this was uh, this was an important like passage for me at least um so he says so he just sort of reiterates some what we've already stuff we've already read and then he says one more thing at the end so i'll just read this paragraph we should evidently divide the science of measurement into two parts in accordance with what has been said one part comprises all the arts which measure number length depth breadth and thickness in relation to their opposites the other comprises those which measure them in relation to the moderate, the fitting, the opportune, the needful, and all the other standards that are suited, that are, sorry, that are situated in the mean. So like what, what's significant for me about this passage is that he says that it's a plural, it's, uh, it's the standards that are situated in the mean. And he, and, and he sort of implies here all the other standards are situated in the mean. So there are, there's other standards, there's more that he hasn't listed yet. So it just, it implies to me that we might be looking for different sorts of means um, depending on what we're doing. So the kind of mean statesmanship might be different than, you know, the kind of mean we have in, you know, weaving or basket weaving or whatever, doing other things. So we might understand the mean then as standards 
that we have for various uh, ideal standards we have for various arts and in that way you know to the extent that they're invisible <laughs> and we haven't accomplished the, the ideal yet then they're will never accomplish the perfect ideal then that then there i guess there can be seen to be forms mm -hmm. well thank you for calling attention to that particular part which i didn't highlight in the reading but i wish now that i had in the translation that i've got uh especially that that makes me think here is um that the expertise that measure the number lengths depths breadths and speeds of things in relation to what is opposed to them and that's an important point i think the word speeds and that particular translation, because that talks about the rate of change. And the rate of change is something that happens over time. And so the occurrence of things over time is not present at any one specific point in time, it occurs over multiple points in time. And so I think that's where the mean is particularly important. And the mean in that sense is a derivative. And that relates, I think, to the definition that I've used in the in my proposition for the for the definition of the forms is that derivative rate of change that occurs over time that is not, you can't point to any one specific time and say that that is the midpoint of all changes because change happens over time. So the word speeds in that, um, in that translation that I just read is uh, I think the key there that, uh, you know, we've got these multiple causes going into this calculation and we need to find that, that mean, which is really the derivative of, of all of that. So. So thank you for that. And Steve? In your diagram for the golden ratio, the formula there, the A plus B over A equals A over B, is that the, are you, is that representing the areas or the sides? Um, which, because it's A and B are represented in both ways in the uh, diagram. Right. Yeah, it's to say that A is the greater length or, or the greater section. So the sum of all sections, the greater and the smaller, A plus B, divided by the greater, is equal to the greater divided by the smaller. So it's it's this less and uh, less and more, uh, greater and less combination that that keeps coming up in Plato. So you're, it's the size that you're using or the area. It would be the. I guess it's the area. Can you um, put in numbers for the sides that? Would might make the you might be able to do a practical example of the mm -hmm. uh, formula on your own. Mm -hmm. not, not right now, but yeah, yeah. No, oh, absolutely. I mean, it, you could put any number in for for the sides to get that same relationship in the golden ratio. So, but it's not not any number, but a specific number, and that specific number boils down to the fraction the square root of five plus one over two which I've got here, and that then is a solution to the equation x squared minus x minus one equals zero, leaving zero remainder. And that's an important aspect, I think, of the golden ratio. So when the greater and the smaller are in a golden ratio, in a specific relationship, not any relationship, but a specific relationship, you get this uh, this result that the, the sum of the greater and the smaller divided by the greater equals the greater divided by the less. And that's where this you know, inequality can become equal when you get things in a golden ratio. Uh, and I think that's that's an important point is, is maybe that the statesman needs to understand how, how you know, we, we've got these inequalities are just, they will always exist. We will never get perfect equality in society uh, or in the fabric of society, but where there's inequalities, the fabric still has to bend and stretch and be flexible and, 
and harmonic. And I think that's, you know, maybe the ultimate of harmonics is the, the golden ratio, uh, certainly when there's inequality, um, you know, and that's, that's maybe the way that, that harmony is arrived at. Uh, is in that particular relationship when you get when you get those inequalities in that specific proportion, so that inequality no longer exists in that when when you put them in that ratio. And I think very much that's what's that's what the visitor familia is saying here is that when you just look at two points and you take the mid middle of those two points, you're missing that whole relationship. You're missing the means of, of bridging those inequalities and, and getting things into a harmonious state. And that's why, you know, I thought that speech of Mallory McMorrow that I, that we started with today, uh, I thought was really helpful to illustrate what happens when that harmony is lost, when people who are in the role of, of leaders and legislators forget that there is some sort of common definition that needs to be defined, um, some sort of common ground that needs to be found, uh, in, and instead they go and seek to divide people and to um, launch these extreme accusations against each other. And it poisons the whole process of statesmanship. And so uh, I think consequentially, those who run for office, you know, are maybe more, more those who are inclined to look for those divisions. Uh, and the people who are more inclined to seek harmony, you know, whether it's Mallory McMorrow or, Robert Kennedy, as we heard in the the speech that started the, the last episode, you know, those people who seek some sort of harmony between people are not inclined to run for office. Why would they want to expose themselves to this sort of poison and division that goes on now uh, if that's what being a statesman is? And so maybe we're losing that kind of concept of statesmanship. And maybe what the visitor familiar is saying in terms of searching for the mean is so critical to restoring some sort of balance and harmony and statesmanship. Darren, any closing comments? Yeah, I, I just uh, want to say I, I like I really like what you just said there. And um, the look, Plato at like two eight five a says we often confuse and mix up these two ways of thinking about relationships. So I mean, as we've been saying all along here, there's the there's this comparing and measuring things relative to each other, and then things relative to a standard. And so often in politics whether like local politics or even international politics where people, you know, politicians debating each other or like parties or governments or entire nation states, like they, they do the first kind of, of measurement and they think that's like really important or significant. And, you know, they're, they're this comparing like each other, like who's better and worse. You know, I, I have more of this, you have less of that, you're worse there, you have more vices there. But Plato is saying here, or the stranger at least, is saying that, uh, well, there's the, the other kind of measurement, which is and we're mixing, we, we think we're doing something important in the first kind, but like the really significant one is the second kind where rather than debating like who is worse or who is better, that we should be casting our sights again, like in order to, you know, bring us into agreement and harmony into the ideal standard. And why aren't we debating like who is living up to a certain standard I mean, I, I'm not going to say that's the only thing we can talk about. Like perhaps there's, I mean, Plato doesn't foreclose that we can talk about things and people relative to each other, but like he wants to point us towards maybe this more important debate, at least when it comes to statesmanship, which is uh, not who is better or worse relative to each other or, you know, which states are necessarily 
better or worse, but like how, like relative to each other, but how they are relative to the standard. And we have to understand that standard. And then we should measure each other relative to that standard rather than each other. And it's that, it's that second kind of measurement that is important in the end. Yeah, no, well said. And, and the standard itself is a derivative of everything else. So the standard arises in those combinations in separations, you know, and that's what we started talking about um, in, this, in today's episode, the, the, this expertise in combination and separation. And that's how the standard arises. The standard isn't inherent. It, it, it's a derivative of all of those combinations and separations. And I think that's the that's what the statesman needs to understand. And again, you know, it makes me think of what Socrates says in the Republic about the philosopher requiring knowledge of number and calculation. I mean, it, this isn't some sort of heartless calculation. It's it's a calculation that takes into account what people do over time. And I think that's so essential to to living and to living in harmony together, which is really what we need to find, especially as we have this tremendous technological power now that that could literally destroy us. And we we have heard a specific leader in the world threatening nuclear war several times recently. And this is, you know, uh, this is the, the state of affairs that we need to absolutely avoid. I mean, we cannot destroy ourselves. Destruction is really just a result of a state of mind. And, and it's the state of mind and how it develops that we really need to understand and, and get leaders who appreciate harmony and how to arrive at some sort of harmony that's uh, that's key. So we, um, we've had another great discussion today. I mean, we've covered so much and touched on so many of Plato's dialogues. And, and I think we've derived some really important concepts and ideas that have been brought to the discussion here today. So I'm really looking forward to uh, exploring how all of this ties up in the end of the Statesman, which we'll, we'll read the last part of the Statesman uh, in our next episode in two weeks. Uh, and to see how that really um, reflects on what the visitor from Elia is saying about the forms of government. And then maybe we can just think about how we apply that understanding that we've developed, having read the full statesman by that point, how, how we would apply that understanding to developing a better, a better form of living together, a better form of society. I think that's, that's the, the key. We have to, you know, maybe put into some practical use this knowledge. It, it, this isn't just for discussion only. I think it's, it's for use practically as well. And I think that's, that's the advantage of uh, dialogues is that we can take away some sort of practice with this. And, you know, and to the extent that anybody has uh, examples of really good statesmanlike speeches, you know, maybe a short clip of four or five minutes that we could play at the beginning of the next episode, uh, please do send them to me and I'll, I'll consider it. And uh, I do have one in mind. Uh, it's not exactly a statesman. It's a, it's a, it's a civil leader. But uh, if there's any but other examples that people think are particularly striking of, of somebody who has said things that very much talk about harmony and talk about uh, or, or, or imply the mean, I think that would be very good to hear. So I, I just wanted to, I wanted to use these practical examples in our sessions on the statesman really to, to bring philosophy to, to some sort of day-to-day uh, -day reality, which I think is the key, and Plato would have been very happy with that, so... Can I just make a quick suggestion, James, yeah. before we wrap yeah. up? It might, it might also be interesting to see um, examples that are opposite of statesmanship, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, like, the, actually, when in my previous comment, the, the kind of discourse I had in mind, I put this in the comments, is uh, what aboutism, where when you're arguing about politics or policies, like, people just point out, well, what about that thing you did? And, but that's that's definitely, if, if anything is, that's definitely the first kind of um, 
uh, measurement, right? Where we're just measuring things relative to each other and it doesn't mm -hmm. go anywhere. We're just accusing each other of how, like who's less terrible. Yeah. So maybe there, there's definitely a lot of examples of that. And then mm -hmm. I think what you're asking is uh, uh, examples of uh, statesmanship where we're, the measurement is relative to the ideals. Absolutely. Yeah, we can look at that too. So um, just a thought. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, everybody. And um, so those who would like to stay online for another half hour for Plato's Cafe, just a casual half hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general, more than welcome to do so. And uh, otherwise, we'll get the uh, recording posted. So those who can listen to the podcast and share in our, dis in our dialogue uh, can do so. And uh, I hope to see everybody in two weeks when we finish the statesman. So thank you again for being here today. Mm -hmm.